Getting Smart, we believe in the power of networks, communities, and uniting around a common purpose. Our next Smart Sprint, a two-week cohort-based learning experience, focuses on bringing your portrait of a graduate to life. It kicks off on April 11th, and we'd love for you, your district, or your organization to be a part of it. Come with a draft of your portrait of a graduate and an open mind. Learn more at gettingsmart.com slash smart sprints or at the link in the show notes. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Shawnee Carruthers, and today I am joined by the one, the only, Chris Emden, founder of Hip Hop Ed, where he is the colleague of our former guest, Timothy Jones. Chris was also the Multicultural Educator of the Year Award recipient and is the author of books like White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and, and for the rest of y'all too, Ratchetdemic, and most recently, STEM, STEAM, Make, Dream, Chris. We are so thrilled to have you with us today. And like I said, I'm a fan. It's so good to see you and to hear you. How are you? I am great. And I am really honored to be on this platform with you guys. So, you know, excited to get into the conversation. Absolutely. Let's get into it. What brought you to your passion for STEM? You know, I I was always that kid who asked questions about everything. Mom, why is the sky blue? Mom, why did a car go? And like, I, I, I was always an inquisitive child. And I didn't know back then that that meant being a scientist until I got into the sciences and started realizing the most prolific and brilliant minds in the world of science are those who pose questions about things as they are for the sake of constructing a world as it should be. And so my inquisitive nature as a child brought me to the sciences. There was a space in between, which was when I was in school. And I wouldn't say that my scientific acumen or interest was fostered when I was in school. But somewhere along the way, who I was at four and five is what brought me to being a scientist as an adult. Yeah. So when you think of being inquisitive and when parents don't really know what to do with those children, how can they help them? Well, you know, the the first step in fostering the inquisitive nature of a child is never shutting down the questions, even if they're annoying even if they don't make sense or even if they're simplistic. Like sometimes, you know, a child asks a question you have the answer to, you shout the answer back at them and then that's the end of the the, sort of of the curiosity. So it's always about, it's about responding to questions with more questions to make the child go and embark on that journey on their own. And that's a parenting strategy, but that's also a teaching strategy. I always tell my teachers that I train, don't ever pose a question if the answer is yes or no. Um, Always pose a question that forces the child to want to know more and ask more, and delve into an interrogation of the concept more. So the first thing is never shut down questions. Um, And when I say shut down questions, it's not just like being quiet, but it's also never shut down a good question with a succinct answer. The second part is that you want to make that child's curiosity be a part of what the nature of the family structure is like. You know, oh my gosh, you asked that question? I was wondering the exact same thing. And guess what? Your grandma always asks those kind of questions too. So you want the child to feel as though their inquisitive nature is something innate in who they are as they are. Um, and once it, it, they feel like it's like, oh, it's a family thing to ask questions and my questions are never shut down, then they start constructing an identity around being inquisitive and curious. And once you light that fire in a child from early, it lasts for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So was that kind of the precipice for your book, um, STEM, STEAM, Make Dream? Like in the introduction, you mentioned like unsaid words and you were talking about how being inquisitive becomes a part of that child's identity. 
So when you talk about those unsaid words versus the said words and how that can create a fracture in one sense of self, what are the unsaid words that you're talking about and how, as a child, do you begin to hear them? Yo, first of all, Shoni, can I just say this? Like, the question already says to me that you actually sat with the work. And I just want to say thank you. You know what I mean? Because, like, folks are like, Dr. E, come on. And they'll ask me, I'm like, yo, fam, what are you asking me about? Like, but the fact that you know the work, yes, that's a, the answer to that question is yes, yes. You know, I, I, I opened up the book with my own story by telling a story of how I was, I was supported in my intellectual journey, but I always felt as though there was a piece of myself that was out of reach because I was never named that. I was never called that. I was called smart and curious and artistic, but I was never called scientist. I was never called mathematician. And somehow the words that folks say to you matter, but the words that folks don't say to you makes you feel as though who you are is limited by what you can't see yourself as. And, and so I, I open up the book that way. And then I write the book to show how we can undo that. Like, how do you tell a child they're a scientist? How do you make them feel like they're, math they're mathematical? How do you give them examples of scientists and mathematicians that they wouldn't think are that? Like in a book, I have all these stories, like, you know, if like Neil deGrasse Tyson or... Or, or Lil Miss Flint, or, 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 or Jeff Henderson, who's a sneaker designer, where kids would be like, I, that, that guy's a scientist? Yes, they're a scientist and a mathematician. So I, I wrote the book to tell stories that are not been told. I wrote the book to tell and use my own life experience as an exemplar of how we need to operate differently and how we frame STEM to young folks. And then I wrote the book to give teachers and parents, like, examples like you know i have like quotes and stories and i also have like lesson plans and ideas and and narratives and then i also wanted the book to feel sexy like you know something make dream like has a nice glossy cover and there are images in there and pictures and i think all of those things matter it's about giving folks a little bit of everything they need to be able to reimagine stem for the next generation yeah, absolutely. And giving folks what they need. I like how you're saying that is for the teachers, too, because when you were talking about because um, it really stuck out to me when you were like the process of rigor doesn't mean the absence of joy or passion. And so when the teacher doesn't have those tools, then they often result to rigor, rigor, rigor. But then that balance in there. So how can educators ensure that there is a balance? Well, the first thing is just to redefine what academic excellence is, what academic success is, and what rigor is. I think it starts there. Because, you know, I can't make a teacher or I can't guide a teacher to see how they teach differently if they have fixed definitions around the essence of teaching and learning. So I always tell teachers, like, what does rigorous mean to you? And then I start saying, well, so rigorous means the kids are sitting down quietly and really working on a hard task. Is that really rigor though? Like, could they be engaging in an academically rigorous task while enjoying it? So let's like, let's redefine rigor. What does academic success look like to you? The kids have a lot of degrees. Oh yeah. Well, could somebody be academically successful without an academic degree and be able to hold a conversation and be scientifically literate and mathematically have a mathematical acumen? Like, can that be successful? Oh wait, let's redefine that. What does assessment look like to you? The kids took a test. Can you assess knowledge and more diverse and complex way. So it's about redefining these pillars of teaching and learning and helping folks to understand that our established definitions of these things are actually fabrications of what they authentically are, that we have been conditioned to believe that rigor has to look like rigor mortis, right? We've been brainwashed into believing that assessment looks like 
boredom and memorization. And once we are able to redefine the broad terms, then I can equip teachers with tools to be able to get to the essence of those things. Now, this is not to say we don't want kids to go to college. This is not to say we don't want kids to do well on tests. It is not to say we don't want them to be able to get degrees and, and pass it. But it is to say that those are not the goal. And that the goals that we, what we placed at the, my man Tim says this all the time, what we placed at the ceiling is actually the floor. What we want them to do is actually soar, bars, right? And once you understand that dimension of things, you can, you can move a teacher along. You can move a parent along in how they work with children. And so once you get to that essence, how do you make it so that it becomes a part of the culture and not just something for the moment? Once And every consistent patterned action over time becomes ritual. Let me say that again. Every consistent patterned action over time becomes ritual. That is to say, some of the rituals in contemporary K-12 education exist not because they are essential for good teaching and learning, because they become ritualized because they were part of the practice that has existed for the last 20 years and we keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And so if you want to interrupt and establish ritual, you must construct new practices and you must not stop at once or twice because practices need to exist at least three times in three different contexts in three different ways until they become ritualized. So the only way you interrupt is to bring the new energy. You know what I mean? Bring that ratchetemic energy to the joint. And, 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 and don't stop the first time it gets resistance, but rather push through till the practice becomes a ritual. You know what I mean? So for me, say, you know, how do you make this a part of what we do in schools and not a one and done? Do it. And when you do it the first time and folks reject it, you do it again. And what if that feels uncomfortable? You do it three times. And before long, you will find that this new practice has become a ritual. And once you've ritualized solid pedagogy, it becomes part of the infrastructure of the curriculum. And so it's about consistency, fam. Care, consistency, and trust, you know, they're the seedbed of any progressive teaching and learning. Now, are those the same seeds to help kids imagine and dream themselves into what they desire to be? Well, you know, they're, they're, they're multiple seeds, beloved. Like, you know, in my work, what, what, I, what, I've, what I've tried to do, and this is, this is a, a really important point that you're getting me to, is um, to teach well. Right. To, 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 to be able to be an adult who faces children to bring forth from them their best. It takes a bit of sociology, a bit of psychology, a bit of art, a bit of performance, a bit of uh, counseling and therapy. Like you have to you have to you have to know so much to be in your element. And sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the deluge of things that we're supposed to be as teachers that we don't know how to be able to glean from those things, like what we need to do every single day. And so that's why my work, I always try to give the broad ideas then shrink it down to something that's implementable. So I've got, you know, the seven C's of reality pedagogy uh, that were outlined in for white folks who teach in the hood. Right. Then I've got, you know, the, um, the, the seven, the seven um, rights of the body as they are articulated in the last chapter of, of my last book, Ratchetemic Reimagining, Academic success. And I just want to tell folks too, that might be my best book yet, you know, for the scholar. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for the parents and all that, STEM Steam Make Dream is the one. You know, for the for the white educators, it might be for white folks, like, like the one that the one that captures the essence of Emden is Ratchetemic. You know what I mean? So in that book, I have these seven rights of the body that, that I, you know, that shrinks some ideas down. Then I got, you know, the seven um 
performance performance art you know capacities so there, there are a number of things but the, the the goal of shrinking those things down in these various C's and various versions is not to just like make things quotable but to to shrink things down so they become palatable right a professor or a scholar has to operate like a teacher give the young folks the inspiration then give them the tools to get there this is constructivism 101 broad philosophical concepts tangible implementable practices at some point they meet and make good teaching and learning and when you talk about all of that that all has to be obviously surrounding in love and sel the social emotional learning and you talk about that but you talk about it in a different kind of way when you're talking about ptsd it's not associated with the usual definition. What is PTSD to you and what's the cure? I, you know, I, I name multiple PTSDs. In STEM, STEAM, Make, Dream, I talk particularly about poor teaching of STEM disorder. And I, and I, and I, and I name it a PTSD because, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is the traditional PTSD. But poor teaching of STEM disorder invokes the same kind of trauma as a traditional PTSD. Now, this is not to... Um, you know, make light of those who have had traumatic experiences, but it's for us to be able to expand our definition of trauma. If a young person has experiences in STEM and they leave the classroom not feeling smart, feeling inadequate, feeling like I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, and every time they see numbers, they get scared. I go out to dinner with smart people, and they always hand me the check. You, you do you, and I'm like, why you want to give me that? Well, you the science and math person. I'm like, fam, it's division. If a if a whole grown adult feels trauma around paying the check and calculating the taxes. That's trauma. And so we have to approach the poor teaching of STEM disorder like it's traumatic. One, you have to reimagine the conditions that the young person experiences that invokes the trauma so that every science and math classroom going forward has to have something in that space that is welcoming to be able to not have the young person feel that trauma. And when I say welcoming, I'm not just talking about the teacher saying, hey, you're welcome. I'm talking about the environment. What's on your walls? What kind of posters do you have? How's a young person being reflected in the curriculum or in the textbook? Do they, do they see faces like theirs in, a, in, um, in the lesson plan? You know, all those things have to be put in place for you to be able to create a kind of classroom that helps a young person to heal from the trauma of a flawed pedagogy. And so, you know, and I write about all this in STEM, STEAM, Make Dream, and because I because I, I really do believe that science, technology, engineering, and mathematics are sites of trauma for children. And they've been sites of trauma for adults. This is why people say things like, I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. And like they're literally, every single time you utter that, you're reframing your identity as not being able to be good enough to enter into a domain that you obviously have the capacity to do too because you're alive. And so, you know, for me, it's important to name the trauma, then to address the conditions that made the trauma come to be, and then create an anecdote to the trauma so our babies can be, be free. Yeah. Absolutely. It's giving me Dr. Joy's vibes about vacant self-esteem and post-traumatic slave disorder, and we can go deep into that. But I'm... Yes, but I'm going to stay with the STEM thing for a second because I know that also leads to that vacant self-esteem, especially for our young black men and um, black and brown boys and men. But as you think about walking through your STEM neighborhoods when you're seeing those boys, how what is what does that STEM neighborhood look like? Walk us through that STEM neighborhood. 
First of all, I couldn't help but when you said black boys and men, and I, you know, I, 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 I want, I couldn't help but say, because in traditional schools they always sitting at the end of the road, you know, you know. For those of you who into nineties uh, R and B, you'll get where I was going there. But but I mean that genuinely is that they they're always sitting at the at the end of one road, unable to go into a journey into the other, right? Like it's always like you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good at athletics at being funny at sports at you know at at hip hop at, at all these things and then you get to the end of that like okay so what's next like is this all i am why do i always sit at the end of one road and i'm not able to continue a journey towards stem and actualization you know what i mean so 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 that's important to know and then in the book i have this really beautiful drawing i just the folk y'all better cop this joint you know what i mean like i had this drawing of of how i envision stem and I was like, I don't know if this is going to work for everybody, but it's the how I see it. And I've always seen STEM as a neighborhood. Like, they're not all one and the same, but there's a science neighborhood. There's, the, there's, the, there's a science block, the math block, the engineering block, the tech block. You know, the blocks are sometimes at war with each other because they want to see what the best block is. But they're still in the same neighborhood because we all say, oh, they're all the same. And then in that journey, in that neighborhood, there are all these pathways in. Like, arts is like the main thoroughfare. It's like the Martin Luther King Boulevard of any any hood. It's like, there's got to be that one long, big MLK Boulevard that passes by all the many neighborhoods. And so you got to get on the arts MLK Boulevard to get to the block of science and math and engineering and mathematics. You know what I mean? And I feel like in that neighborhood also, there are like people along the journey that can help you out that they may not look like they know what they're doing, but they're always the ones to get you there. It's like when you lost and your phone is on zero and you ain't got no charger and you finally got to wind the window down and ask that weird dude on the corner, yo, how do I get the math? And you be like, he should not notice, but he does if you ask him the directions. And so I created this diagram, this picture, that was like what in my head STEM looks like. And I wanted to offer what was in my brain to the world because I feel as though if folks see the world in that way, they don't get so intimidated by their experiences in STEM. Like the purpose of articulating that vision in my head and putting it on paper is to create the conditions to allow folks to not feel as though, you know, because I did well in science and not well in math, I couldn't do well in STEM and then check out of all of it. Like I wanted folks to see how inclusive this was and how art and culture are in that neighborhood to help you to be able to navigate it successfully. Yeah, no, I love that. I love how you don't have to stay on the street that you're on and that, you know, you're not defined by that street, but you can go over to the next block and and dig into something totally different. What are some of the best schools around the globe doing in STEM education and what can we learn from them? You know, I always tell folks like my, and this is, this is when we, I, I, it's hard to say this because I get to visit a lot of schools. A lot of people invite me in and they do good stuff. So it's, it's like, it's like asking, um, it's like asking somebody your favorite child or or if somebody asks me what's your favorite MC, I'm like, ah, oh. like, you know what I mean? So it's hard to name the best schools because I've seen some really great schools. I've seen some awful ones. But right now, I'll, like, High Tech High in San Diego is a beautiful place, man. It's just special. I think the way that um, making and creating and doing and being inquisitive and being curious is built into the curriculum fosters a kind of STEM identity. Like in STEM Steam Dream, I have this diagram where I talk about like science-mindedness. Like you ain't got to be well in, do well in science per se, but you got to develop these science-mindedness skills. Like, you know, and if you read the book, you'll, you'll see the heuristic I'm talking about, the picture I'm talking about. And I feel like High Tech High does a good job at that. Um, you know, I went to Brooklyn Technical High School and I, I, I've written about that school 
in many ways in different texts and articles and oftentimes don't necessarily celebrate all that's going great at that school. But tech is a place that treated those children like they were smart. They had some issues with some black and brown babies at certain points. But you knew when you walked down the hallway in tech, like, yo, you smart. And there were high expectations set because of that that made you want to go into these disciplines. So I was an aerospace major in tech. I didn't even know what aerospace was, but I, I liked planes. And when I went there, I learned about other dimensions of STEM through aerospace. And I was viewed as intelligent, even though I was also viewed as problematic because my blackness and my hoodness. But there was something there that was magical in Brooklyn Tech. So if I was going to use two exemplars right now, I would say Brooklyn Technical High School, my alma mater. And I would say High Tech High in San Diego. And so as we think about what we can learn from both of those schools, and I always talk specifically about high tech high just because I've been there a few times, but what does it mean when kids can see their STEM like work just right in front of you on display? What does that mean? That's every, look, you've got to see you. That's important, particularly for black and brown children. Like you got to enter into a space and say, oh, oh, wait, it's a black t-shirt. What was, was that a, was that a black principal? Was that a. Black consult, like, so a Latino student, wait, wait, wait a second. What was a, that was a Latino teacher who came by and said, what's up? Oh, this is a special invited guest that looked like me and have the same accent. So the first thing for children is they've got to see people that reflect who they are in positions of power in the institution. Then that allows them to see themselves as having power and potential. Then you got to see your work wait, I created that piece and it's being celebrated and everybody who walks in here sees this every day and to talk about how brilliant that is. Because, and, and when I see my work being revered and celebrated and I'm inundated with it, I always want to do what? I want to do better than the last work. You, you don't have to motivate a child to put work in when you did something and that's dope and you and you got accolades for it, re- respected and loved for it. And now they're like, all right, what else do you want to do? I want to do the same thing as that, but better this time. And so you don't have to say, you know, put an academic challenge the only challenge is yourself. One of my favorite quotes is the only man better than me isn't better than me. They bury me, but I resurrect so effortlessly. You want to invoke that in these babies. The only person that's better than you is better than you. You don't want to meet a benchmark because the state said so. You want to meet a benchmark and surpass that because you know there's more in you. And that happens when you see your work. So um, those are why those things are important. And I'm a firm believer in creating spaces. Like one of my newest projects you know, beyond like my hip hop work and my STEM theme work, whatever else it is, it's just building classrooms. You know, I partnered up with Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts to, to reimagine what a post-pandemic classroom is that allows a teacher to see a young person as a work of art and see themselves as a performance artist. So what is this? If you see them as art and you see yourself as an artist, then you must be in a stage that invokes that art. So what does the classroom look like? I'm, I done licked up with some architects and some furniture designers. And that's a, that's a, that's a new a- arena of my work because I started realizing that you can have amazing pedagogical practices in a space that dulls the spirit and soul. And then they become limitations to what you do pedagogically, not because of what you say, but because of the, the, pneumatolo- the pneumatological environment. You know what I mean? There ain't no space for the spirit to flow. And, and, and sometimes an aesthetic environment invokes new possibilities and you must do that concurrently with the pedagogy. Yeah. Typically when we think about creating those environments, obviously we're creating them for kids and we're, we're creating them in a way so that they can be creative and imaginative and, and do like project-based learning and solve problems. But 
So many times people think those things are just for kids and not for teachers and not for parents. So what are some activities that adults can do to re-inspire their love for learning so that they can be a better version of themselves to show up differently for students? Yo, the same thing you do for the kids. Look, we're people. <laughs> you know, like, I, I like when kids need love. So do grownups. Kids need beautiful spaces. So do adults. Um, kids need to surround themselves with people who believe in the best of who they are. So do adults. And, and for me, for, for teachers, you know, my one rule of thumb is always just don't kick it with suckers. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a, a teacher becomes a reflection of the kind of teachers they surround themselves with. And you will oftentimes find a teacher who has a belief in the possibilities for the future who will be around other teachers who don't. And you see them six months later and they're... Whew. So for me, like, if you want to stay inspired, stay around inspirational people. And if they're not in the physical place that you are, go find them online. Join hashtag hip hop ed and, and get on our Twitter spaces every Tuesday night at 8.15 and get some of this joy, get some of these sauce, get some of this inspiration, meet people in the network. You know, but you're, you're, you're as an educator, you are a reflection of the kind of educators that you associate yourself with. Um, you know, misery loves company, but nowhere more than teaching. And you will find yourself losing your essence when you surround yourself with folks who don't believe in the radical possibilities in teaching and learning. You know what I mean? And and then also like, you know, I, so, you know, anybody who knows me knows I like to dress up. Like I'm, I'm rocking, so I'm promoting today. You know what I mean? I got a little hoodie that says real men teach. I think it's also about embracing where you are as it relates to teaching. Like I'm a dude who historically, like, not everybody in my, they were like, you want to go teach and do education? What's wrong with you? Nah, I, I, that's my that's my calling. Real men teach. I'm proud about that. You know what I mean? If you're a sister or, you you you, you know, you're a part of the LGBTQ population or you're, you're an indigenous person or whatever it is, like, lean into who you are and connect that to the calling that it is to teach. And once you do that, where your authentic self is connected to teaching, you stay inspired. You don't nobody got to inspire you. You will inspire yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about inspiration and leaning in and you kind of lean into your ratchetness, which you're, you know, so proud of and you, you mm. mentioned your your best work, define what ratchet is. Define that for us. Yeah, to, to be ratchet is a multi-layered definition, you know what I mean? Um, you know, a ratchet is in a conventional definition, you know, a tool, right? It's a it's a you know a ratcheting wrench. It's a tool that oftentimes is small enough to go into small spaces to help you to be able to tighten or loosen something so that it can be more effective. That's a ratchet. Um, as a as a 90s New York hip-hop cat, you know what I mean? A ratchet is the secret weapon. You know what I mean? I, I write about this in Ratchetemic, like, yo, don't mess with old boy. He got the ratchet on him. That means he got, he got something on him that he could air the place out, right? And more contemporary definitions of ratchet uh, ratchet is a is a way of knowing and being that's a little much, a little extra, a little loud, a little obnoxious, but literally it's saying a little bit more authentic and a little bit anti-respectability. And when I define ratchet, particularly as it connects to being ratchetemic, it's all three, right? The ratchet is the thing that is a tool that you hold that can help you to loosen or tighten to make life easier that should be a secret weapon. 
that you hold and can make folks know that you have arrived, but at the same time, that weapon does not get revealed until you're a pure, authentic self. So when I say ratchet and ratchetemic, it's a triple entendre, you know what I mean? It's my secret tool I hold close within that can air the space out but can open up new possibilities. And that must be combined with my academic and intellectual self. And when I could put them things together, them triple ratchets and my triple academic also, because in, in ratchetemic, I write about to be academic is to be, you have to have knowledge of books, knowledge of self, and knowledge of circumstances and surroundings. So if you have your knowledge of your books, self, and surroundings, and you got that secret weapon that can air the place out that you hold tight to make things looser, then the world opens up. And I want all our babies to know that they could be rashademic. You could be you and be smart. And, 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 and today, we are finding children as early as eight, seven, six years old saying, I'm going to be myself. I don't like school. And you say, how are you saying yourself and not school? Not because they constructed that their authentic selves are not educational or related to academics, but because schools have told them that. And when schools define those things as separate, young folks reject knowledge. They're rejecting the structures of school, but they, they start rejecting the pursuit of knowledge because they believe that school is about pursuing knowledge, when in reality it's about conditioning. And so for me, it's about how do you recondition young folks to embrace their full selves? You know what I mean? Read these books, get these degrees and also be fly as hell. And I want our teachers to get there. I want our students to get there. Um, and, and I feel like if we do, we have a better future for this work. So how does that happen? How do educators embrace that ratchet culture? Find who you are. You know, when I say ratchet, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, hood ratchet for everybody. Some of y'all suburban, some of y'all rural. You know, I think it's ratchetness is just finding your authentic and pure self. And most educators don't know themselves. Like they, every, everybody got a little ratchet in them, in, you know, in the words of Lil Boozy. And, and then everybody's performing what they think a teacher should be. And they don't realize that when you're your authentic self, it actually helps you to connect best with young folks. And you ain't got to be like them young folks. You just got to be you. And so I think it's about not, try, don't be like Emden. I'm me. I'm unique and special. But guess what? You are unique and special as well. And I can't be you either. And if you find your best you and connect that to the work of connecting with young folks to be able to bring forth the best them, um, then you're more effective and, and, and the conditions to allow them to be more academically inclined and to work in a pursuit of knowledge increases exponentially. Because kids can see it, right? They can see oh, when you're not being you. Damn. <laughs> you know, they, they spot, they, you know, a kid could smell a sucker from a mile away. And we haven't realized that yet. You're trying to be a good teacher and they're just saying, oh, you're a good fraud. And so I will refuse to learn from you because you're not being a full and true self. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let, let's close with a segment that we call one-to-one. -one. All right. So what's one voice that helps shape your thinking, two insights for ad leaders, and one additional insight? Oof. All right. One voice that helps shape my thinking I would say is, whew, maybe maybe I would say in education or just generally. In education, I would say I'm always moved by Paulo Freire's work. I feel in many ways that the work I do is a 
it's it's a contemporary iteration of and application of for this season of of his work. I mean, when I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I like I you know I like or teaching and transgressing, like my mind opened up around what I thought of it. So yeah, in education, that'll be my one. In education, we're gonna keep it education one. That's my one. Um, two. What was it? Two two notes for ed leaders. Two insights for ed leaders. Mm-hmm. Insights for ed leaders. Leadership is more about service than it is about what you think leadership is. And if everybody in your building understands that you are there in service of children and teachers, it's important. And they will coalesce around you and follow you. But as long as you think that you are guiding the ship with them following behind and not you in service of them, you're always going to have a struggle. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing for ed leaders is um, you can't lead no teachers if they don't see you in a classroom. Anybody trying to listen to you or your PDs or little articles that you put in their mailbox, don't nobody care, bro. They want to see that you have walked in their shoes and that you're willing to walk in their shoes, that you're willing to fail with them and learn with them and inform them with love because you've been there with them. So if you want to lead a teacher, teach that teacher's class with that teacher witnessing it with love. And then debrief with that teacher and say, what could we have done better? What did I do wrong? What did I do right? Um, so you lead teachers by teaching with them. And then the last one, who what was the last one again? One additional insight. Additional insight. Mm-mm. Mm. Teaching is a performance art. It is. It, it, it is. It is walking into a classroom, physically or virtually, knowing that everything from the top of your head to the sole of your feet is a co-teacher. And you must find ways to use all of your limbs and fingertips and eyebrows and lips and nose and arms and toes to help you to give forth to young folks something that makes them turned on. Like, don't abandon this body. Know your body. Know yourself. And use it to help you connect to those babies. Teaching is a performance art. Yeah. Teaching is a performance art. Well, this has been a pure joy. If the people listening here are inspired, if they aren't like motivated to go get those kids into STEM professions and to learn more, then then they weren't listening close enough. They need to go listen again. So thank you, Chris, so much for all of your passion, your motivation, what you're doing out here on behalf of the ed leaders. We want everybody to keep learning and keep innovating for equity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I just I, I got to close out with this. Um, it's hard to be consistent in creating something for teachers and ed leaders. And, and y'all been consistent. Y'all got episodes out and you keep going at it. And I want you to know that this is a platform that is needed. So I see you. Keep going. Don't let up. You know what I mean? Till the babies get free, right? Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. All love. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 